So uh, before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is October 16th, 2020, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Stephen Moberly, who is in Bloomington, Indiana. Is that correct? Yes. All right. And we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So uh, just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Shelbyville, Indiana, on April the 1st, 1941. Okay. And uh, what were your parents' names? Uh, my father's name was Charles Morris, spelled M-A-U-R-I-C-E, Moberly, but he went as Morris. Hmm, okay. And my, and my mother was June, and do you want her maiden name? Sure. Fer- Ferris. P-H-A-R-E-S, Moberly. Mm, okay. And um, how long had your family been in Indiana? Oh, a very long time. I mean, I, I, I could not tell you, but they, uh, there, there have been uh, Moberleys and Ferrises in Indiana for, in, in the Shelby County, Indiana area for, you know, I don't know, many, many years. Yeah, like, okay. I'm not, I'm not real good on the family tree. So. <laughs> no worries, no worries. That's cool though, so a lot of uh, Indiana history there. Um, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my father was uh, a member of the Shelbyville Police Department and uh, chief of the department for most of his uh, career. And uh, my mother had um, taught in a one-room schoolhouse uh, she got out of college uh, in Shelby County, but she then um, decided that she would be better off uh, with a different type of job, and so she worked in the business office of Indiana Bell Telephone Company uh, for 38 years. Oh, cool, which okay. Was in, which was in Shelbyville. Yeah, that's cool. That's where you went to pay your telephone bill or to sign up to get a telephone or to have your telephone taken out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah, we don't have any of those anymore. Yeah, true, true. Did you have any siblings? I, I, I do not. I'm an only child. Oh, okay. And how would you describe your childhood overall? Well, it was ordinary. Uh, you know, I, as an only child, I, I probably had some extra... Um, privileges or dividend than uh, a family that had numerous children. Right. I was the only one. Uh, but uh, it was normal, you know. I attended the public schools in Shelbyville. I walked to school uh, and uh, walked to the elementary school where I, where I attended. I, the junior high and high school were a further walk, further away in Shelbyville. You could walk it, but you could also catch a ride. And so... I would say it was, you know, a normal for someone born in 1941. Right, okay. And were there any particular people that were sort of most influential in your life growing up? Well, some of my teachers, certainly. Uh, I think uh, my uh, I went to Thomas A. Hendricks Elementary School. Thomas A. Hendricks was a vice president of the United States who right. had lived in Shelbyville. Uh, I, had, I had some wonderful teachers there, uh, and the same way at Shelbyville Junior High and Shelbyville Senior High, um, I think, uh, uh, you know, that I, that I felt 
where I got where I felt that I got a good education, uh, and um, so I had a very positive feeling about my education in the Shelbyville school system. Yeah, that's great. Now, did you know much about your family's political views growing up? I did. My my parents were. Um, interested in politics. They were Republicans. Okay. Uh, and uh, my uh, grandfather, my father's father, had uh, served as the uh, township trustee for Addison Township, which is the township that Shelbyville is in. Uh, and uh, the Ferrises, uh, my mother grew up on a farm in eastern Shelby County, and the Ferrises were Republicans and, and uh, the Moberleys were Republicans, and uh, so there were never any uh, domestic disagreement about politics. Yeah. Okay. Now, in terms of growing up and going to school, were there any particular favorite subjects or extracurricular activities that you were part of? Uh, well, I, I would say. Uh, uh, I played tennis uh, okay. in high school, and, and uh, in high school we had what was called the Forum. It was an organization that you were selected for, and uh, it met uh, monthly and discussed current events. And oh, cool! There would be there would be uh, information about the topic in the library, and you were expected to go in and you know read through all that before the meeting of the. Uh, Forum. Uh, they met in the evening. There was a faculty sponsor, Ray, Ray Henshaw. And so uh, I, you know, I was interested. In, I was on the student council, and uh, I was editor of the school newspaper, and so I did, you know, those types of extracurricular activities. Yeah. Okay. Now let's see. As a child, what were your views about the state of Indiana or about being a Hoosier? Well, I don't know that I had any, as a child, I don't know that I had any views okay. about me. Sure. You know, Hoosier or the state of Indiana, I, uh, I mean, I think it was a pretty normal childhood, and mm-hmm. so I had the benefits of what what Shelbyville had to offer, which was a pretty good park system and a pretty good school system, and um, the, I, the public library was uh, three blocks from my house, and you know, I became uh, uh, used the library a lot. I was a reader. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so all, all of that was a very positive thing for me. Sure. Now, where did you attend college? Uh, I attended uh, Indiana University uh, in Bloomington for four years as an undergraduate, and then I stayed three more years and got a law degree. Nice. Okay. And what was your bachelor's degree major? I was a history major. Oh, history major. Okay, cool. And what made you choose history? Well, it was something I enjoyed, certainly, in reading about uh, in uh, high school. And um, I, I actually, because I had been the editor of my high school newspaper, I when I came to IU, it was kind of, and I attended the Indiana High School Journalism Institute in the summer before my senior year in high school, uh, and, and was at their in their web editor's workshop uh, for for two weeks uh, in, in Bloomington, 
and I, I kind of thought I would be maybe become a journalist, but um, I I changed my mind uh, at, at the end of my freshman year and uh, uh, decided to major in history. Yeah. Okay. Always, always a topic that, that I've been very interested in. Yeah, that's great. Were you involved in any clubs or organizations in college? Uh, yes. Um, I got involved in campus politics, not, not Republican or Democratic, but there were two campus political parties. And my freshman year, I was I got nominated uh, for a freshman class office or office and elected. Same for my sophomore year, I was elected junior class president and I ran unsuccessfully for student body president. Okay. So looking back at your college experiences, um, you know, how would you view those experiences overall? Well, extremely favorably. I, I am very closely connected to Indiana University, uh, have always been involved in alumni activities. Um, when Jim Madison was chair of the uh, history department, Donald Carmony, does that name ring a bell with you? He was kind of Mr. Indiana History. He was on the faculty of IU. Oh, yeah, a little bit. And, and he was one of my history professors at IU for Indiana History. That there, uh, Dr. Carmony was still alive, but was elderly. But anyway, uh, there was an effort uh, to uh, to uh, fund a, a chair uh, in his name. And uh, I and another friend of mine uh, who was a lawyer in Rushville, John Worth, we were the co-chairs of the campaign to endow the Donald Carmody Chair in Indiana history, and we raised over a million dollars to do that. Wow, that's incredible. Jeez. <laughs> cool. And, and, the, and the chair is still in effect. And it was the, the, they just changed uh, after Don or after uh, Jim Madison held the chair for a while, then Eric Sandwies uh, did, and and now that someone from, has left Indiana State University History Department and has come to the IU History Department uh, and is holding the chair. Oh, okay, interesting. Wow. So I and uh, I was active in the IU Alumni Association in in two thousand eight two thousand and nine. I, I have moved through the chair starting as the uh, vice chair and then the chair elect and then in 2008-2009 I was the national chair of the IU Alumni Association. Oh, okay, wow. So, a, a volunteer. Yeah. So, yeah, really deep connections no, no, there. No, no salary. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. Now, in college, did your political beliefs change at all, or did you become more interested in politics? Well, uh, yeah, I, I certainly joined, you know, the young Republicans at, at IU, and uh, I had a history professor, uh, R. Carlisle Bewley, uh, who had written a, a two-volume uh, uh, history of the Old Northwest, which, of course, uh, Indiana was a part of, uh, and Dr. Buley was probably one of the few Republicans and conservatives on the, in, in the history department uh, uh, among the professors. So uh, I had several courses with Dr. Buley and um, did well in them. And he was a, 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 
a very interesting professor and, and a compelling lecturer. And uh, so uh, he, he did have an effect on me. And I was a history major with, and, uh, with minors in, in political science and psychology. Uh, so the history department was excellent back then, and I believe it still is today. Yeah, okay. Now, what was your first job out of high school and college? My first job I, was to re return to Shelbyville, Indiana and start practicing law with an established attorney there. His name was George Glass. Okay. And where did you see yourself going after that? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I continued, I became involved in certain, you know, civic activities in Shelbyville and, and in uh, Shelby County Republican politics. Uh, and uh, I, I just thought that in, uh, I would uh, be interested in serving in the legislature someday. And so in, in um, 1971, um, I applied to be one of the uh, attorneys for the Republican majority in the Indiana House of Representatives, and I was uh, chosen. There were three of us. And this this work was just during the legislative session, which was like early January through uh, the end of April. Uh, and then I did that again in uh, the uh, 1972 session, and, and and which was the short is the short session of the legislature. It was over in mid March. So that kind of whetted my appetite to serve in the legislature, uh, and so I ran uh, in the Republican primary in May of 1972, and I had two Republican opponents. I, I, I won, and then it was a great year to be a Republican. Uh, 72, Nixon uh, was running for his second term, uh, and he was running against George McGovern, who was not a saleable commodity in, in conservative uh, Indiana, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it was a big Republican landslide. Yeah. And, and I got, I think, about 63 or 64 percent of the vote, but, and the Republicans ended up with a majority in the House of 73 seats, but Watergate reared its ugly head, and Richard Nixon did some things that he shouldn't have done, and so uh, 1974, when I was running for my second term, my plurality dropped from uh, almost two to one to 55%, and the Republicans lost 29 seats in one night in, in, in the Indiana House of Representatives. They went from 73 seats to, to 44 seats. Wow. So I, was in, so I was in the minority for the next two years. Yeah. Wow, what a change, yeah. Yeah, big change. And so when you got out of college, was that kind of the path you were thinking? That you go, you know, practice law, then perhaps get involved in state politics? Probably, yeah. That, that, you know, many lawyers, uh, I think there are fewer lawyers in, in the legislature today than uh, maybe in, in the past. Uh, but yes, that, that is often a path to, to service in in the legislature or Congress, because you 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 know you're familiar with laws as an attorney, and sometimes you want to uh, you know participate in the process of changing them. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. 
Now, when, if at all, did you get married? I, uh, I got married uh, I, later in life. Uh, my wife and I were married uh, uh, in um, 1991. Oh, okay. And we have been, we were classmates at IU, but we took different paths and reconnected years later. And uh, we were married in I guess the year after you retired from the legislature. Well, actually, I, re- I retired from the legislature, and um, I did not. I did not seek a, 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 a tenth term. I, I, reti- I retired from the legislature uh, in um, uh, not, not in, in not, yeah in. 1990 was my last session. Okay. Sandy and I, Sandy and I were married in March of 91. Yeah, okay. And let's... So, what, um... Trying to think here. Um, when you first got involved in politics, what were the key issues or legislation that you championed or were trying to fight against? Well, uh, when I was first in the legislature, I, I had served as a delegate several times to the Republican State Convention, uh, and I, I kind of saw, and I think the same things happened at the Democratic State Conventions, that uh, the delegates that were elected at the political party conventions probably were not really too representative of the people that were in their party. And so I was very uh, interested in in changing the law uh, to have a direct primary uh, because back then, the candidates for the U.S. Senate governor, lieutenant governor, the state offices were all uh, nominated at the state convention. Uh, And very, you know, there were maybe like 3,000 delegates at each of the conventions. And... You know, there were hundreds of thousands of Republicans and hundreds of thousands of Democrats in Indiana, but they had little say in who was being nominated. So I was a champion of um, having a direct primary uh, to include a U.S. Senator and Governor, uh, and that was something I championed as a freshman, and uh, finally uh, it, it, we were able to get that passed in Governor Bowen signed it into law in 1975. Interesting, okay. And so that was one of my main interests. Yeah, okay. I was, I, I was, when I was elected to the legislature, I was the uh, president of the Board of Trustees of the Shelbyville Public Library. And so public libraries had always been one of my interests. Uh, and uh, after I got elected, uh, I got a call from... Uh, um, the director of the Anderson Public Library, and he said, word has reached us that a library trustee has been elected to the legislature, and we have several bills we'd like to have introduced. Would you be willing to do that? So I, I started then also doing a lot of legislation for uh, public libraries uh, in 
to help them and also to protect them for some people from some people who were not fans of public libraries. Yeah, okay. Interesting. All right. Who were your national political heroes or state or local heroes? Well, uh, when I was in 1952, we got our first television set in my household. And, and so that summer I was able to watch the Republican National Conventions and the Democratic National Convention. It's when I, General Eisenhower was running for president in the Republican Party. And his opponent was Senator Bob Taft from Ohio. My parents were for Taft, but I was for Ike. Oh, okay. And uh, so, anyway, so that kind of uh, spurred my interest in, in politics. Uh, from, and so Dwight Eisenhower was someone I also admired. Richard Nixon was until he uh, got involved in some things regarding Watergate that he shouldn't have been in. And, you know, uh, and as far as state politics is concerned, uh, Otis Boland, uh, when he was governor for eight years, Bob Orr, when he was governor, uh, were, I thought, people were high-class people that did, did a good job. Yeah, yeah. And so when you got involved in state politics and you were starting to run your own campaign, did you have a particular strategy? Well, uh, my, when I was running, I, I, my family had a good name in, in Shelby County. Okay. My parents were well, well-respected individuals in the community, and I said, you know, they helped me get into office, and then, then it was up to me to, if I wanted to stay there by, you know, doing a good job and, and working hard. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, as far as my campaigns were concerned, um, I never spent more than $2,000 in any campaign. Uh, that would buy me some newspaper advertising in the Shelbyville News, the only newspaper we had. It would buy me a direct mail piece, and it would buy me a little bit of radio on the local radio station, WSVL. When I re retired from the legislature and, and did not run again in 1990, the Democratic and Republican candidates for my seat between them raised and spent over $100,000. Wow. So, I, uh, I can see things were changing. There was a lot more emphasis on, on raising money and uh, kowtowing to the special interests that were helping to fund campaigns in, in both the parties, and, and I was not interested in that. And uh, so I, I, I was fortunate that I never had a primary opponent uh, after my first time in 1972. And, and, I, and basically, I, ran, I think I had, I ran an opposed three times in, and then had um, six, uh, six times I, had a, I was contested. Uh, but in any event, uh, none of those were at, at the races at, at the top of the chart at Democratic headquarters. So yeah. I worked, I worked hard, uh, and, I, and my district was all of Shelby County, about 75% of, of my district was Shelby County, and then I had another 25% that, that spread out over 
I even had one township in Marion County that adjoined Shelby County on the northwest corner, and I had a township in there, and I had one township in Johnson County, one in Hancock, uh, and uh, one in Rush. So uh, basically, as long as I could do a good job for Shelby County and keep them happy, uh, it was it was not hard to be reelected. Right. Do you remember the name of your first opponent? Yes, his name was Bob Norman. Okay, Bob Norman, interesting. And he was the director of uh, the largest nursing home in Shelbyville. Oh, okay. And he was the best candidate of the Democrats who I ran against. But Bob had the misfortune of running in what was a big Republican year. Yeah. he, he, he He did not prevail. Yeah. Nixon helped me to get into office in 72, and he almost helped me to get out of office in 74. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So what was it like your first election day? How did you feel? Well, you know, you're, you know, I was always kind of nervous, but and I didn't really see that it was going to be such a big Republican blowout in, in 1972. So, uh, you know, you're anxious about how, how it will turn out and go down to Republican headquarters and the votes are coming in and so it's, you know, it's kind of an exciting evening. Yeah. And did your feelings change with each election? Or? Well, no, I probably always thought, you know, that I might lose. So I, that's why I, <laughs> I uh, uh, since I didn't spend a lot of money, and I oh, I did not accept campaign contributions for political action committees. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, uh, therefore, I, I had a pretty bare-bones budget. And, but not, none of my Democratic opponents really uh, were able to raise much money or spend much money either. So uh, I, I was helped, helped by that. Did your campaign strategies change at all over your political career? Uh, no, because what I what I did, uh, I think I mentioned I, I did some newspaper ads, uh, direct mail piece, uh, a little radio, but I did a lot of door to door. I, I uh, t- today both parties seem to play to their base. Well, I, I tried to play to the ticket splitters. Hmm. I, I, I analyzed the the vote uh, over several elections, and those were the precincts. That kind of switched back and forth between the two parties. Yeah, and that's where I went. That's where I went door to door and, and met the voters. Interesting. And was that a common strategy at the time, or? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I had read a book during the summer of 1972 uh, called "The Ticket Splitters," and so that kind of inspired me to think. You know, this 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 is person, the author, whose name I can't even remember today, uh, has, you know, got something going for him. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, probably both parties uh, who were running legislative campaigns said, you know, you've you got to go where the votes are. You've got to appeal not just to your base, but, but to those who, who do switch back and forth depending on the election. Yeah, yeah that's, that is interesting. And so how did you find those people? Was it just, like you said, kind of walking door to door? I, 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 looked, I analyzed past election returns. Ah, okay. Uh, and, and, and saw what precincts uh, would, you know, split their tickets and, and 
vote for some Republicans, even though they might vote for more Democrats uh, for uh, other races. And so that's where I would go generally uh, 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 and, uh, and go door to door. So do you think interest in looking for those swing voters, has that decreased or increased over time? or? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, it, it, I, I think maybe it's decreased somewhat, and, and now people are maybe just being more uh, uh, trying to gin up their, their support among, among their uh, base voters mm-hmm. rather than trying to appeal to a, a broader uh, audience. Yeah. What were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office? Well, um, as I mentioned, I had been at the legislature as one of the three majority attorneys uh, at the 71 and 72 session, uh, which was a part-time job in the sessions only. So I wasn't, you know, a complete newcomer to the process because right. the, the uh, attorneys' offices were little glass cubicles in, in the rear of each chamber of the Democrats on one side and the Republicans on the other. And so I sat there and I watched the proceedings and, you know, I was frustrated because I couldn't get up and speak and I didn't have a vote. So then I ran and I got elected and then I sat as a member and I was still frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't always turn out the way I wanted it to. Yeah, true. So did you have a pretty good idea of what you were signing up for in terms of expectations of the legislative process? Pretty good, you know, because of my experience of having, you know, worked there and, and yeah. I knew a lot of the legislators and, uh, and uh, so I, I had a, a pretty good idea of what it was about. I certainly, you know, we, we had a big influx of freshman Republicans uh, that were carried in on Nixon's coattails, many of whom only were with us one term, yeah. but, and, 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 you know, they were kind of dazed by it all, I think, but I, I had a pretty good idea of what, what was going to happen. Sure. And so when it came to learning some things that perhaps you didn't know when you were not serving as a legislator, how did you learn sort of the ins and outs of state politics that you weren't so familiar with? Well, probably just by watching and keeping my eyes open and my ears open and, and talking to other people and that were certainly more, there were certainly state legislators in the House that, you know, had been there for 20 or 30 years and so they were many, uh, so you kind of had access to what their opinions were and so you, um, you could kind of by osmosis pick up some of it. Yeah. So who were your political mentors then in the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I, I would say that um, uh, Kermit Burroughs, uh, who was a farmer from Peru, Indiana, up in uh, north central Indiana, succeeded Otis Bowen uh, as speaker. And uh, first I, I, became, I got to know Kermit during the two years I was, on, I was one of the majority attorneys. So he was certainly someone that uh, I knew and admired. Uh, and um, uh, I, I would say Kermit, and then um, 
uh, Ned Lampkin, who was a doctor in Indianapolis, an internist, uh, had gotten ele been elected in 1966, and he um, became the majority leader. And so uh, Ned uh, is someone that I still keep in touch with, and he and his wife, and uh, Ray Richardson, who is a, a, a lawyer from uh, Greenfield, uh, joining Shelby County on the north. Ray and I had served together in the student senate he, he would, when he was in law school and I was an undergrad. But So, you know, talking with those folks, I learned a lot. Yeah, that's, that's great. How did you know the needs and wants of your constituents? Well, um, I devised a questionnaire uh, before I got elected. I did two things before I got elected. I mean, after I was elected, before I took office in, in uh, January, and I went to the editor of the Shelbyville News, and and it was, a, I think, a fair question there that uh, on what were going to be the, the main issues, uh, and asked if they would run it, and that that no one had ever done that before. Mm, uh, okay. So that was uh, a way, and people mailed them in. You know, there was no internet then. You know, and so I got a good sampling of how people felt on the issues. Um, and and um, the other thing I did, um, in, in, uh, at the end of my first year, uh, in, uh, in uh, December and then maybe the first two weekends in January, I had eight, eight town meetings uh, around my district. In, eight in Shelby County and two in um, uh, Franklin Township in Marion County. And on Saturdays, I would go uh, and have uh, a couple in the morning, maybe from 9 to 10 and then 11 to 12. Uh, and uh, they were publicized and people would come. Sometimes I'd have a, a decent turnout and other times I might have one person. But that uh, gave me a sense of what my constituency was interested in. Yeah, okay, that's great. I did that uh, every every December uh, while I was in office. Oh, okay. Now, you might have already mentioned it, but what was the first bill you sponsored? Well, about the direct primary election. Okay, yeah. And then some of the library bills. Right. So when you were in the Indiana General Assembly, what was the sort of typical interactions like between the majority and minority parties? Well, of course, the first two years, you know, the Republicans had 73 seats, and the Democrats had 27, so the Republicans were in complete control. And then, and, you know, after that, uh, 1974, we had a reversal, the Democrats took control and, and we Republicans are in the minority. So uh, you, you know, after you've been in the majority uh, and pretty much had, had your way in control, and then it's kind of a humbling of, of, of experience to no longer be in control yeah. and no longer, uh, you know, calling the shot. So I think it's, I think it's good uh, sometimes to alternate uh, that and, uh, that maybe uh, it takes some of the arrogance out of, out of the majority also when they find out what it's like to be in the minority. Oh, sure, I bet. 
What were the regular interactions like with other members that were like formal and informal? Well, of course, um, each party has caucuses, especially on the major issues. And, and, you know, you get together with your fellow Republicans and you talk about the bills and the pros and cons and what maybe needs to be changed in them, uh, etc. And then as far as the Democrats, you know, there are a number of um, social obligations, or not obligations, but opportunities, uh, both uh, during the day and then at night, because I commuted back and forth uh, uh, from Shelbyville to Indianapolis and Indianapolis to Shelbyville. I did not stay in Indianapolis in a hotel. Shelbyville is only 27 miles from downtown Indianapolis off of I-74. So I came back every night, which also enabled me to do some law practicing because the committees meet uh, during the morning and, and then the floor sessions would start like at 1 or one thirty in the afternoon. So if I didn't have a committee meeting in the morning, I could stay in Shelbyville and practice law. Uh, okay. uh, so, you know, you, you have opportunities with your colleagues um, uh, through, you know, interaction on bills, some of the bills that you're the same authors or co-authors on, uh, and through the caucuses and then through some of the uh, luncheons or social events when uh, interest groups from your, that have people in from your home district that are coming up for those, uh, I, I, you know, you, you could go to some of those. Yeah, okay. Were there any differences between members of the House and Senate? Uh, the Senate, the House of Lords, yes. Uh, <laughs> we, were, we, were the, we were the people's house, and the House, they were the, they were the House of Lords. Because uh, there were 50 of them, and there were 100 of us, and so yeah. you know, they, were, they were special. Uh, well, uh, yes, uh, you know, if you had a bill that you wanted passed, of course, if it passed the House, then you had to find uh, a senator, uh, usually a Republican, when the Republicans had the majority, or the Democrats when they had the majority in the Senate, to, um, you know, take your bill and, and get it passed there. So you, you had to try to, you had to try to, you know, get acquainted with some of the senators who might be interested in some of the, the same in, uh, uh, issues that you were interested in. Yeah. Did you find the process of generating a bill to be pretty straightforward? Pretty much so, you know, because we have the Legislative Services Agency, which yeah. is a nonpartisan professional. They, they, they're there regardless of who's in control, and, uh, and they have many fine people there, uh, most many lawyers, but also people who do fiscal analysis and, and all of that sort of thing. Sure. So, you know, they, they drafted the legislation. They took your ideas and put it into uh, legislative prose. Uh, and, um, and and so uh, I thought I think the LSA uh, does a great job and, and then and, and, and still does and is, is very respected by the members of the General Assembly. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. Yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah. sounds like they they've uh, have a long history of doing pretty well. I, I think they do. I I, I mean it used it, they professionalized that uh, used to be a, they had a very small staff but uh, it, then in the 
um, late 60s, early 70s, it, it really has come into its own. Yeah. How did you go about garnering support for legislation? Well, you, you know, when the bill is first filed and it is assigned to a committee, you got to go, you had to go and visit the individual members of the committee in the House, or if it had passed the House and was over in the Senate, the Senate, you had to go to the senators that serve on that committee, or the House members that sort of explain the bill and ask, you know, that you hoped that they would support it. Yeah. Was there any, like, complexities regarding trying to get votes for certain legislation where you'd have to do, uh, you know, sort of get to know people more perhaps and develop rapports with people in and outside of formal votes or committee meetings? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, over the years, I mean, there were people that you worked with in the House that would either not run again or be defeated in the same way in the Senate. So, you know, there was always new blood being added. Yeah. So you, you had to, you know, make new contacts and, and uh, et cetera. Did you have a sense of how people would vote prior to actually voting? Oh, on some issues, yes, but there were always surprises. Okay. And how influential were party leadership? In, well, yeah. they, they, were, they were influential. I mean, influential more with some members than they would be with others. Okay. Um, the... When Governor Bowen got elected, he had been the speaker, uh, and he had a property tax plan that uh, had certainly some good parts in it. I voted for some of it, and I, I did not vote for parts of it. Uh, and uh, but they would, you know, when you have a 73 seat majority, you, you can lose some people and still get get it done. And so, on the whole, it it. it went through and it became very popular because it did put a cap on property taxes, which were a major issue that both the Democratic candidates for governor, Matthew Welsh, a former governor, and Otis Bowen, who was the House Speaker, campaigned on. Uh, and uh, it's still been a pretty popular uh, law today. Yeah, sure. Did you feel pretty comfortable working with uh, Democrats as well as Republicans? I did. I, I did because there were certainly Democrats who were, you know, interested in some of the same things I was interested in, and so um, you know, m most of the most of the legislation that comes up for a vote is, is not um, a partisan matter. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 some of the high button issues are, but most of it is is pretty routine stuff. Now, was it always important to have to work with the other party on issues or I, I think so I think uh, you know I, I think as a courtesy you, you needed to make them feel that they were important uh, after uh, my first two years I was in the majority then two years in the minority and then in 76 uh, the Republicans got the majority back in the house we had the majority in 76, 78, 80, 82, 84, uh, 86. And then in my last session in, in 1988, we ended up with a 50-50 tie. Yeah. 
Okay. And and that was the first time that it ever happened. And there and when we met to convene uh, in for the organizational day in, in November, I mean, what are we going to do? We got a 50-50 tie. Well, eventually they those party two parties leaders really worked out an agreement. We had co-speakers, we had co-committee chairs, we had co-clerks of the house. <laughs> I mean, everything was split down the middle. Wow. It was, it was chaos. Yeah, actually. that's crazy. <laughs> no, no, it was more than crazy. Because <laughs> 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 I, you know, you, it's just, uh, and, and it's happened once since then. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Actually, I I uh, I feared that that would happen someday because we had uh, we had some very close uh, divisions in the house uh, before we ended up with a tie. And I had a I had a constitutional amendment that I introduced for several years that would add one member to the house. We'd have 101 members, and people said, "Well, why don't you reduce it to 99?" And I said. That would never pass because every member of the house would think that their seat would be the one that would be abolished. Yeah. And and so, um, I, in my last session, I, I I did get it passed to the house, uh, and it passed the Senate to to add the one member. But then when I I was gone, and the person that picked it up and tried to get it passed, you you know you a constitutional amendment it has to pass two differently elected. Uh, sessions of the legislature, and so it passed one session to add a, a member. Uh, but it, uh, then when it came up for the second time, uh, she tried, but she couldn't get it done. Okay, sure. What would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? Well, they they don't know a lot about it because really their interest is in um, maybe the, the big hot button issues, whether it's taxes or social issues or whatever. I mean, I, I would have people say to me in Shelbyville when they would see me on the street during the winter, they'd say, what are you doing home? Why aren't you in Washington? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. hard to believe, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, they 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 know you're you you're in the legislature, but they they did not know that you were uh, uh, not in Washington. You were in Indianapolis. Interesting. Pe- people have, you know, kind of. It's a pretty superficial understanding of government. Yeah. And which is too, which is a shame. Well, why do you think that is too? Well, because they have so many other things that are worrying about their jobs, their children, their you know their spouse, their yeah. health, or you know I mean, and they read about it. And you know the it, like the, the Indiana legislature used to be heavily covered by the press. I mean, all the major cities: Evansville, Fort Wayne, um, Gary. Um, Terre Haute, uh, other major cities, South Bend, they all had uh, uh, bureaus in Indianapolis, and they, they had you know, reporters that came and spent the entire session there, lived, lived in Indianapolis and covered the legislature. The Indianapolis Star and the Indian 
course, we had the Indianapolis News at the time, which was the afternoon newspaper. I mean, it, it folded. Yeah. Uh, and in any way, the legislature isn't nearly received the coverage and, and exposure that, that it once did. That there were there were press people in the press, especially in the Indianapolis press, that that knew as much about the budget and how it worked than than the actual legislators who were you know uh, the author or the sponsors of the budget. But but a lot of that is gone now, which is a shame. So what do you think could be done then to help sort of get more people involved in the legislative process? Uh, well, I think legislators need to, and I think some are, but I think legislators need to do a better job of, of getting out and um, taking and meeting their voters and, and trying to, you know, have uh, attend public forums and, and yeah. answer questionnaires on the legislation and not just rely on What were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the General Assembly? Well, taxes, obviously, the property tax program in, in 73 and 74, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, um, uh, uh, abortion, uh, that issue kind of started in, I think it was 1973, uh, when the, the U.S. Supreme Court had a ruling there. Um, also, um, you know, we had phosphate uh, in detergents was a big issue early on. Okay. I mean, you don't hear anything about that anymore because that, that's all changed. Um, I, you know, I, I have to give some deep thought about some of the, some of the other major ones over the years. Um, seat belts in cars was very controversial for a long time. Finally, we got that done. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, um, uh, it, it is, you know, and of course I've been out of the legislature since 1990, and so there's there's been, you know, a lot that's happened since then. Sure. And so, I guess you're talking about uh, a few big things. What what about the tax controversy? What, what what was going on? Was it just about okay whether they wanted to raise taxes or not, or? Well, uh, well, like always a hot button issue we, we used to have uh, usually we'd have the general fund budget then we'd have a budget for education for the public schools and then we would have a budget for highways and of course there were always attempts uh, to uh, increase the gasoline tax and, and that was always controversial and then the, the school funding formula uh, how the money for education is divided up that goes to the, all the various school corporations in the state. So now, now they have it all rolled into one budget. Uh, and so, uh, but all of that is uh, tax, taxes and funding education and cutting taxes. And uh, we, in, when Bob Orr was governor in from, let's see, that would have been from 81 to 85, uh, we had the recession that started in uh, 1981-82. We had cut the state income tax. We had to have a special session uh, after the 19, uh, 1982 election 
and we had to raise the income tax that we had cut, you know, just a few months ago, or we were going to have to close the public universities and the public schools. Wow. And so people, you know, had to bite the bullet and vote for a tax increase, and for some people that was always, you know, very hard. Yeah. I, you know, I probably wouldn't last very long in the legislature if I were there today because I, I voted to raise I wrote it to raise a lot of taxes in the 18 years I was there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, people generally are smarter than you think. And, you know, it, it, it never cost me politically. Okay. People knew we had, to, we had to fund government. We had to keep the schools open and the universities open, the hospitals open, etc. Right, right. And you also mentioned another big one with like equal rights amendment. Can you describe some of the debates that were going on and your role in them? Well, I, I wasn't act, uh, active on either side of the issue, but of course the issue was to because women are not mentioned in the federal constitution, and this was the, uh, an amendment that was in all fifty states to put women in, in the federal constitution and mention them, and et cetera. Uh, and um, it, it would pass the House and then die in the state Senate for years. Yeah. And then finally, it, 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 it passed, well, I think, towards the, maybe my last term or term before that. So there was a lot of, uh, leg, a lot of legislation or a lot of interest by various interest groups in support or in opposition and you know i mean there were some crazy things like women so you can't vote for that or people men won't open the door for me anymore <laughs> 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 what <laughs> does it have anything to do with that sort of thing yeah anyway uh and of course it did pass indiana and uh, and uh so and it finally passed the state of virginia legislature just just this year i think uh, and so now it's going to be in the courts whether uh, enough states have passed, uh, have ratified it, enough have, have uh, passed to ratify it, but the issue is that it has a time limit on it. Uh, it had to be done within so many years, and, and that the time limit is, has long since expired. So it'll end up in the courts whether it will or will not become part of the federal constitution. Yeah, okay. And you also mentioned abortion. Were the abortion debates back then pretty similar to the ones today? No, uh, it's uh, much more serious today. I mean, there, I, I really can't, I'm sure there may have been bills, but they were never of the prominence that they are now in the legislature where they uh, have bills every session uh, that passed to try to restrict abortion uh, rights and uh, then then Planned um, Parenthood or whoever will file suit and, and they'll be not, they'll be declared unconstitutional by the federal courts. So we, I don't think we ever passed the bill. We might have had resolutions mm -hmm. of that uh, in opposition to abortion or in support of abortion rights, but we never really had any legislation that passed the, the I can remember. I think that's all happened, you know, since I, since I left. So would you say that the debates today then are probably, I guess, a lot more 
sort of intense than they were back then? Oh, I think so, definitely, because I don't think we actually had any bills. If we, if there were bills introduced, they never got out of committee. Interesting. So I, it's like, what piece of legislation that you worked on was sort of the most time-consuming? Well, the most time-consuming, um, when Kermit, Kermit Burroughs was speaker um, in uh, 76, 77, 78, he promised both the Indiana Association of Cities and Towns, which is now called AIM, uh, I don't know, Accelerate Indiana Municipalities or something, I don't know why they changed their name, and the Indiana Association of Counties that he would sponsor and set up a, a, a Blue Ribbon Commission to look at local units of government and see what could be changed and, and modernized, etc. And so that he, his bill to establish a local government study commission uh, became law in 1978, and uh, uh, I was appointed to the commission, and I was elected as the chairman. And uh, Frank McCluskey, who at that time was the Democratic mayor of Bloomington, was elected as the vice chair. We had a blue ribbon commission that consisted of people from business, labor, the legal women, voters, city government officials, county government, township, and we had our own staff. Um, and offices over in the ISTA building, and we rewrote all of the laws, local government laws in the state of Indiana into a new chapter of the Indiana Code. Wow. Uh, and, and we uh, recommended the repeal of uh, over 200 archaic laws. And we enacted home rule in a limited sense that could be for programs and that, not, not, not fiscal home rule, but we did do some modernization on, on what things you could, uh, counties and cities and, and towns could do by local ordinance. So uh, that was a three-year project, and um, I, I was uh, pleased with the way that turned out, and so were the city and town people and the county people and the township people, and it was a very good, a very, a very good uh, project. Sure, okay. What would you say was your proudest moment as a legislator? Well, I was proud of that, but I was also, I was, besides the direct primary, I was also interested in uh, opening up government uh, or pub public inspection, and um, I was uh, one of the authors or sponsors of the open door law that guaranteed the access of the public to public meetings uh, of governmental bodies uh, and then we uh, after we got that in, uh, initially passed then I was the author of two bills uh, in two different sessions that strengthened that also the uh, open records law I was not the leading person on that uh, but to guarantee the public the act, to have access to public records to be able to read and inspect them, make copies and all that. So I, I was always very interested in public access legislation and, and that in that area, those areas, uh, and in the uh, local government study commission, I, I consider to be my major achievements as a legislator. And 
was one of those called like the open door law or yes okay yes. got it yeah I remember reading something about that and uh, but okay cool yeah it, it was a big battle because um, uh, one of the, one of the examples back in those days was you know if the school board was going to fire the basketball coach they would uh, go into uh, uh, take a recess. Uh, and and you know then about one o'clock in the morning they they come back in the session after everyone in the room had left. <laughs> wow. uh, we we put a stop to that. You couldn't whatever your agenda was, you had to stick to it. And you, and you were only could have executive sessions for you know a certain a certain uh, uh, restricted some purposes. Uh, and all decisions had to be made in public. All votes had to be made in public, and that was, uh, you know, that was hard for some, for some entities. Yeah. Okay. That's been something that was very much needed. Sure. What would you say was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome during your time in office? I, I don't know. Um, I, I thought that most of what I attempted to do, I was able to do. I, I think that, you know, sometimes the partisanship, uh, uh, and, and especially as the, as the late, the latter part of my career there, uh, maybe got uh, more in, more intense, and there was a lot more interest. There's a lot more emphasis on fundraising and going with the groups that supported your caucus and all that. And when, when I saw that was happening is when I realized I need, I need to leave. Okay. Interesting. What, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I think, you know, in, in, uh, keeping the state solvent and then having a good educational system, both K through 12, higher education, economic development, uh, being able to uh, have an economic climate in Indiana that will bring business and industry here and provide people good-paying good jobs. Uh, also, uh, social service uh, uh, things for those who, who have fallen on the hard times and, and who need government uh, in some form and in some way to help, help them through tough times. Think all of all in the environment. Uh, we all want to have clean air, clean water, clean land. So all those those are the big ticket issues. Yeah. Now I remember reading in a couple of papers about uh, there's a statement that said that you were respected by both political parties because of your independence. Uh, do you know what might have given you that reputation? Well, I didn't always vote the party line. Yeah. Was, you know, that didn't always make me uh, popular. Uh, I was probably not Mr. Popularity in the Republican caucus on some, some, on some issues. But, sure. Uh, uh, I, I, I felt like I, I tried to represent everyone, and I didn't think the Republicans were always right, and I didn't think the Democrats were always right. Sometimes each were right, sometimes each were wrong, and that's usually the way I cast my votes, but I, I had a, a, a sense that, that fewer people 
were thinking like that, and I, and I thought, you know, I've been here 18 years, and that's long enough. So, if I understand you correctly, would you say that over time it started to get increasingly partisan, or...? I, I you know, I, and of course the 50-50 tie didn't help matters. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'd say it, it, things became probably more, more partisan, and uh, as more money was spent on campaigns, uh, more people... Well, they had to, you know, maybe be more beholden to the uh, interest groups that were helping to give them campaign donations, and etc. Yeah. Okay. How would you summarize your time overall, looking back uh, as a former legislator? Well, uh, interesting, challenging, and. Um, I, I hope um, I hope it I made a difference. Yeah. Do you have a favorite story or anecdote from your time as a legislator? Oh, not not really. Okay. Not really. If I did, I'd forgotten it. <laughs> Fair enough. It's been a long. You know, it's been a long time. Yeah. Sure. I understand. What lessons, if any, did you learn? Well, that you you know you have to learn to get along, uh, learn how to get along with, pe- with people that don't necessarily think as you do. Yeah. Because uh, in the legislative process, not everyone's background or information is identical to yours, and so you you have to try to work with them, maybe even educate them, help them to understand, uh, and. Uh, uh, so I think that's important. Sure. Do you have any regrets as a legislator? Do I have any regrets? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I do. I, I don't know. I probably, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't have stayed 18 years. Maybe I should have just left after, you know, 14 years. Yeah. Maybe a little, a little longer. I, I was. Um, I think when I announced I wasn't running, I was quoted in the paper as saying it had become a numbing sameness to it, and that was kind of the way I felt also. Yeah. What advice would you give to future legislators, even current legislators? Well, I would say study the issues, be independent, and uh, try to get around it meet your constituents and find out what they're thinking. Yeah, okay. See, last few questions for you here. Um, how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Well, it's certainly, um, I, I think, uh, economically, business-wise, we, we have many, many uh, more businesses and uh, industries of, you know, every different possibility. I mean, we who, who had ever heard of technology in the, the way we know it today or the internet? And, uh, and so I, I think that's, you know, a, a major a major change for us. And uh, so public schools, the, the kind of, uh, uh, when I went to Shelbyville High School, we had Spanish and 
and Latin, and now they have all kinds of foreign languages, and so I think uh, that they teach, and so I think that uh, education is uh, certainly broader and more important today than, than it ever has been, because it, it offers so many more alternatives for various types of students. And I think uh, uh, the way we treat uh, those with uh, disabilities, both intellectual and, and, and uh, physical disabilities, uh, are much improved over the ways that it used to be in the 1940s and 1950s. And sure. Much more, much more support for mental health. And so there's, you know, many positive things uh, about living in Indiana. Yeah, okay. Um, how has politics and the Indiana General Assembly changed in Indiana? Well, I think a lot of it, campaigns are more expensive. I mean, you know, we, we see Indianapolis TV and Bloomington, and, you know, there are people running for state representatives that are on television now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, state senator. I mean, that was unheard of uh, during the 18 years I was there. If you, were, if you could have, be on the, your local radio station, that was considered to be pretty modern. So, uh, the, uh, you know, and, and the cost of campaigns and, and what's involved and, um, you know, the amount of money you could even get in your campaign from, you know, outside sources, uh, uh, maybe national associations that aren't even in in the state of Indiana, so all of that is, you know, quite different from the way it was between 1972 and 1990. Sure. What, if any, enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Well, I think Hoosiers are still uh, very uh, interested in their families, uh, and I think they have a good work ethic. I think education is valued and important, uh, and um, I think Hoosiers, uh, they're conservative, uh, but they're not crazy. Okay. And last question for you. What do you want Hoosiers to know about their role in relation to the function of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I want them to read about it in the news media, to uh, watch about it on television, listen about it on the radio, try to get to know their legislators. Uh, many of them probably will have town meetings around their districts, either before the legislature starts or during the legislature, and I, I hope that they will uh, participate and attend and uh, learn uh, about uh, the government that's trying to represent them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to mention? Uh, no, if you, you ran the gamut, I think. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking part in the project. Um, it's very helpful, and it means a lot. So I'll probably be in touch in the near future and let you know when we finally get it posted online. Oh, okay, that'd be fine. And, uh, yeah, so if you ever have anything, any questions or anything, you know, feel free to reach out to me. And But thanks okay. again. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Take care. Goodbye. Bye -bye.